school sucks, but being capable, being like smart, being, you know, the person who can figure things out and who knows things is very cool. And we all kind of in some way or another aspire to that. So it's very straight. It just seemed like an obvious disconnect between where we all kind of want to be and then the institution that's designed to get us there. Well, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been doing a lot of wellness focused conversations on my show. And so mm-hmm. I'm excited to bring back a little bit more of um, just like culture, education, all that fun stuff. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to your perspective because, uh, you know, in my eyes, a huge solution of, you know, many solutions needed in sort of our current state of the world and with young people is education, right? Um, and so really what I want to explore today, um, among many things, is just sort of trying to understand, like, where are we at? What's your perspective on where education is for young people, the role of education, but, you know, specifically what kind and how the culture of division and, you know, the opposite of viewpoint diversity has sort of overtaken things. And so I'd love for you to just kind of tell me about how you got into teaching and how you've seen things evolve over time and basically where you are now sharing, you know, using your voice on social media and just sort of expanding uh, people's horizons about how we can uh, approach education. So basically I got into education. It's odd because I didn't like school. I wasn't like academically focused. It was more of a social thing. Um, And then, you know, I've been teaching, I'm going to my 17th year and I'm pretty good at my job. And I get asked a lot, you know, how did you find this? I think young people want to know because like, I want to find a career that, that I'm good at and, and very interested in. And then, oh, parents are, are always, you know, they, they like what I'm doing with their child. So they're like, how did you get into this? I didn't have a good answer until fairly recently, a few years ago. And I think what it was, was school sucks, but being capable, being like smart, Being, you know, the person who can figure things out and who knows things is very cool. And we all kind of in some way or another aspire to that. So it's very straight. It just seemed like an obvious disconnect between where we all kind of want to be and then the institution that's designed to get us there. They just didn't seem aligned at all. And then I had all these teachers who I'm sure were trying their best or whatever, but like, I didn't want to be like them. I didn't want their life. They were giving me life advice. Essentially, they're saying, learn this so that you can go build a good life. But then they weren't living it themselves. And I was like, I can do better than you. Like, like it's not that hard. To, all I want to do, all I need to do is connect why this building is here and these lockers are here and these people are all stuck in here. Why are we really doing this? And just break it down to like first principles and explain it that way. And I think that's probably why I've been successful as like a classroom teacher. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because school can really be such a negative like entity for people, you know, like, I mean, for for some reasons that makes sense. You know, first of all, middle school to high school, we're like going through a lot of physical changes, like we're becoming humans. What even is that? Like, it's a whole process that emotionally you're going through a lot. So then on top of it, you know, trying to like learn and figure out what you want to do with your life. It's, it's a lot. So I think having a teacher who brings the best parts of school and can like bring the curiosity and the element that inspired you, inspires you is what 
most people looking back on, they always remember that, like the teacher, the mentor who helped them through whatever they were going through. And so, I mean, it's interesting because now I would say for me, I'm most familiar with what's going on at the university level, Mm -hmm. mainly from, you know, having, I only graduated just a few years ago in uh, 2019. I went to BU, which is actually, I'm like in the apartment that I lived in at that time, which is funny. Um, But and then now my my younger sister goes to Columbia in New York, and I, I'm sure you've probably heard like that is essentially become somewhat of what I would call like a woke mecca. And so oh. it's interesting because it gets it's sad because what used to be an incredible place of like curiosity and learning and inspiration seems to me from the outside perspective, having you know gone through it, that it's sort of changing into more of like a militant way of thinking and you have to like fit with the pack. And then of course these people go on to real life. So what I'm curious about is how the high school climate is looking and also just a bit about like, you know, where you teach, what you teach and sort of what you're seeing as like an insider there in high school. And if you have any perspective on how that trickles out to university as well. For sure. Yeah. Um, speaking about Columbia though, did you see the interview with Jordan Peterson and Yonmi Park? The woman yes. who's like, yeah. like, like, he's like crying and she's saying how it felt like North Korea, like when she went to Columbia, like that was a real, cause he said, just like you said, like these were institutions that were really beautiful. I, I want more. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's a powerful, I watched, oh my God. I, I watched for sure the whole interview of her on Joe Rogan and then at least mm. a chunk of it on Jordan Peterson. I remember being like, this is one of the, I have chills thinking about it because it brings that perspective where an outside person like a foreigner, right? Mm-hmm. I, I love getting perspective from someone who isn't really quote unquote from here. My dad actually grew up in Argentina. Okay. I was born there. And part of like my development of just my viewpoint on life, the way I view things is because I've always had that outside voice who can say, you know, I don't really have skin in the game yet, you know? And so I can mm-hmm. see what is really going on. So that's a kind of, a, I, I remember sharing that podcast with people. I was like, this is such an important perspective to bring in where someone's like hey i know what the u.s is supposed to stand for i've also been through like the worst like literal like unimaginable things right and for her to be like guys this is not okay like i thought that america was this place where we really value diversity of all kinds and she's like this is absurd like it's it's crazy to hear that so i can link that to your question about high school because I think what's happening, I've interacted with a lot of people in the university level through my podcast, through um, Heterodox Academy and stuff like that. They are isolated in an echo chamber. They are intellectuals who have been in the academy their whole life, uh, and they don't have access to a lot of people who are blue collar. Like they do have access to them, but they don't really interact with them much. They are in this kind of bubble where concepts come up and you can, you know, that are whatever you can call them, like woke or whatever it is. Because it's all kind of in your head. It's like, it's like how things work in theory. It's all these theories and stuff like that. Not actual what's affecting people, boots on the ground. And so I think that's the problem with universities. There's all these intellectuals who have never really gone out and cleaned toilets. Like they've never gone out and really, you know, dug fence posts and stuff like that. So they have all these concepts and these, these theories about working class, but they don't really know what that's like. They don't really know how this plays out in practical in the practical world, even like critical race theory, which I am, I've been very critical of, um, but I don't think it's nonsense. I think it's, it's, it serves a purpose in an intellect, in the, in an academic 
um, environment. But when you take that, you put it in the real world to like high school kids and stuff like that, these ideas, it's really destructive. Um, and then, how, then how do you see it as, yeah. as a quick aside being yeah, yeah. destructive CRT? Cause I, that's something that I, I read a story about the high school teacher in New York. I forget his name, but you probably Paul heard Ross. about it. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, right yeah, yeah. oh, cool. Yeah. I, I read through it and I just thought, wow, this is so interesting. I feel like people don't have an understanding of true human psychology of like how, like the nature of being a human. I think that's where a yeah. lot of this stems from is like, again, it being all in theory, but how, how do you see like what became, what do you see as being destructive in the classroom with critical uh, race theory? Right. So critical race theory, um, I, I, I understand it very well. I've read a lot on it and, and um, had to explain it because it's coming up. That was a big thing, like the Virginia um, elections and stuff. So it's, it's, it serves a good purpose. I think in like law schools, something could not be uh, racist on its front, but it still has racist elements of it. Uh, Yick Wo um, uh, versus it's a Supreme court case. Yick Wo W R Y I K um, W O I think um, was basically Chinese immigrants were uh, running laundromats in San Francisco and they wanted to get rid of them, but they couldn't say like, you know, Chinese people get out. So what they did was they said, Chinese people are, are in these brick buildings. So they said, you can't have laundromats in brick buildings. Okay. So it was a way to basically push a racist policy without being racist on its front. The war on drugs. John Ehrlichman under Nixon said, hey, we got to lock up these black people and these communists and stuff, but we can't do, we can't just lock up black people anymore. You know, like it's racist, like in the good old days. So what we have to do is we have to cover it up with something else. And that's going to be the war on drugs. I think this, so what you do is you put on this, these lenses to say, where is racism maybe? that you wouldn't normally see it. And then you go, maybe it's here, and then use other elements of social science to, to flush that out, see if it is actually the case, and then you can change laws. That makes a lot of sense. I can get behind that. But what's happening is, by definition, it's looking for racism everywhere where it may or may not be. And when that gets pushed, and it is getting pushed in the K-12 system, what you're doing, and as you said, you know, going through high school, middle school, you're, you're, you're super, you're all over the place. You don't know up from down. You don't know what's going on with your body. You don't feel normal, whatever norm, whatever the hell normal is. Okay. You don't feel um, like, you're, like you're empowered, all that kind of stuff. When you get pushed then to feel like a victim, we're all victims. But again, by definition, it's you are being wronged like and being told that over and over again psychologically plays out in really terrible ways because then kids will constantly, constantly be looking at how they've been victimized. And while that's happening, literacy rates are stagnant at best, going down by a lot of, by a lot of um, metrics. So you're saying you are victimized, society is out to get you, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. And there's, we're not going to even give you the skills that you would need to get out of it because what you need to get out of victimization and there are a lot of people who are deep victims by society by government by other individuals what you need to give them is hard skills and empower them to take risks to go out and hustle even though you might fail you go out and you work towards something better that's like the american dream kind of original american dream kind of thing so what's happening is we're bringing this in and we're pushing kids to feel victimized and then not doing anything about it. And that's what I say is so cruel about it. Right. So it's almost like the original intention, essentially by bringing 
awareness to where racism and inequality exists, we're actually making it almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy to tell people because of this immutable characteristic or what you were born as or whatever, like the group you've become part of, there's nothing you can do about the fact that you're oppressed essentially is like a huge theme, at least that I've seen over and over. And I mean, to me, that feels very obvious that that sounds like very negative messaging for sure for young people, but for anyone to you're like reinforcing the idea that we're supposed to get away from, which is that like whatever, you know, the best example is like your immutable characteristics are things that you can't do anything about, obviously, but that that's supposed to be your lot in life. And there's nothing you can do about that. And I feel like I mean, I'm framing in a certain way, but that I think is what most people's concern is, is you're creating more division and more like separation among people when we should be focusing on. I guess what unites us. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way it plays out in practical things you can see all the time is if you say Kamala Harris, you're not very good as a vice president, you're a racist sexist. And, you know, um, um, uh, Obama, Michelle Obama talked about how she, uh, a man butted in line with her. She had like a hat on and stuff, a man butted in line. She's like, that's what happens when you're a black woman in this world. He, you know, people just butt in line, don't see you. It's like, no, that's not that would never hold up in any kind of rigorous way in social science. Like there could be a million reasons why a guy butted in front of you. A million reasons. Maybe it's racism. Maybe. But let's dive in and figure this out. But you don't need to do that. And what happens is I'm friends with, the, I have a whole network of teachers that I interact with. Um, and, you know, what's happening is you fail a kid and let's say you're a white teacher and you fail a kid who's black or something like that, that they can just say you fail me because you're racist. And then I have, I've had friends who are teachers who had to be brought up in front of a board because as soon as you throw that card out there, my teacher's racist because they fail me, then you have to go in front of the board. And you have to basically prove that it's not. So you have to take really meticulous things of like, well, here's an A paper, here's a B paper, blah, blah, blah here's this paper. But it's just, it's a, it's a card that you can just play at any time. And kids are, I love teenagers, man. They're always, they're like the ra- Raptors in Jurassic Park testing the fences. Like if they can play that card, they're going to play it and they're being told you can play this card and they're playing it. And I, I think some probably buy into it because they've kind of been like steered that way. But I also think others are just know that it's a game and they can just play this game to try and get out of it. And it's, it's, it's an absolute mess. And it is happening in schools because it's happening again at the university levels, where it's being pushed at Columbia, you know, college of education is like the top college of education. It's all over that. But most college of education are pushing this critical theory stuff. And then it filters down into the PD for the teachers. So the PD is all this kind of stuff, like looking for unconscious bias and stuff like that. And then it goes to the teachers and the teachers filter it down to the kids. It's like, it's like where there's a lot of whatever, like mercury in the fish. Like it's, it's the big fish because the little fish get eaten by the big fish, blah, 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 all the way up. So that's the way that this stuff plays out in the education system. Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly, that if seems that it's coming from the university level or like the what you were saying at the beginning of sort of academics and people who haven't they've been in that world their whole life where it's all just about like theory and ideas and whatever and they never have to see it play out in real life and that that seems to have trickled through the system into like lower levels of education like middle school high school yeah and you know a lot of people are teaching at these colleges of education and stuff like that they probably were teachers they might have been teachers a long time ago i had a woman named christine sleater on my podcast because i looked at the 
model curriculum for California. They had this like ethnic studies model curriculum. It's all, you know, woke. And, um, and her name kept coming up. And I, I brought her on, I was like, you know, cause she's pushing a lot of like, you know, ethnic studies and kind of like a, a woke way, but she's an old woman. She's in her seventies. And she was basing this on her experiences when she was teaching in Oakland in like the 19 mid 1970s. Like, yeah, there was probably some pretty racist stuff on the books, like even like in curriculum and stuff like that in the 1970s, but times have changed, you know, I mean, like the, and, and I think they're kind of stuck in those ways not realizing how progressive we were. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I mean, it was, we were at a, almost at a better point than we are even now when it comes to race relations, you know? So, so what was going on? What, why? Well, because now we're so focused on it. Now we're making this, the, the, the thing we always talk about race. I think we were talking about it a lot less back then. And that's probably a good move to talk about it less and just see each other as human beings and just get over it. And now it's kind of, we're cycling back to this, this, this kind of old way. Yeah. What do you see as a potential root cause? Like one of many, at least like something that you see as mm-hmm. one of the more obvious root causes of let's say what is the difference like between a person who is is willing to like embrace let's say viewpoint diversity or discourse or like productive Mm -hmm. disagreement and the person who you know is likely to push their agenda their specific ideology on people without considering that you know they could be wrong etc like what what do you see as the potential human piece of what causes that um there's a great book by john height and greg lukianov called the coddling of the american mind very good and it breaks down a lot of social science you know i love john height's work work got to work with him um uh and a lot of it i think is the comfort that we're feeling is is not aligned with our biology we have evolved to struggle to have real struggles and when our when we have a refrigerator full of food, when the num, you know the biggest problem that we have is obesity, not starvation. You know, uh, when you have access to whatever you want. What what what's that? What's that great song by Michael Jackson from? I don't know. I can find out right away and then listen to it. Like it's so quick. We have so much comfort. I mean, my elementary school didn't even have air conditioning, and I was born in the 1980s. Like this, we have we have gotten so comfortable that we kind of seek struggle. Our bodies need struggle. So, you know, uh, I think that that, you know, if you look at um, anxiety and depression rates and stuff like that, they're higher in more affluent societies. And people might say, well, that's just because they can get diagnosed. But I don't think that's what it is. And there might be elements of that. But I think what it is, is a real lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. I think that, you know, we're doing, Steven Pinker's work is like, hey, we're doing better than ever. Yeah, but not in certain things. Suicide is arguably the worst it's been. Um, drug overdoses are the worst it's been. Anxiety and depression is the highest it's been or mental health crises and stuff like that. So I think that's what a lot of it is. And so we're so comfortable, physically comfortable and mentally comfortable in that I don't have to watch something or listen to something that I don't want to watch or listen to. So if something's uncomfortable, I can change the channel, so to speak. And I think what happens is the same thing um, occurs with ideas. So when we're presented with an idea that is uncomfortable, 
which is, by the way, what education is supposed to be. Education is supposed to be uncomfortable. You're supposed to learn that you had a bad idea or a not as good idea, and you're going to update your, your intellectual software. And I think what's happening is that is a very disruptive process, and it feels very uncomfortable, and we don't like being uncomfortable, so we're going to fight against that. We're going to protect our sense of self and our ego from that, that new information that's going to upend the way that our, our head is working. And I think that that is, is at the root cause. And some people um, embrace that discomfort, you know, and, and I think that it's, it's also seems to be um, a lot of people who embrace discomfort in other realms. Like it's, it's interesting. There's a lot less um, people who are, you know, harshly against that stuff, whatever it is, whether it, it could be woke. It could be even on like the, the other, the right end side of like, you know, whatever the ultra QAnon, whatever that kind of stuff is, is there people that don't put themselves in uncomfortable situations very often voluntarily, you know, like I love, I do this intellectually. That's how I started these platforms and stuff. But I also do like ice baths and hard workouts and all that kind of stuff just to constantly be uncomfortable so that the feeling of like going through a hard run and be like, I'm just going to start walking because this is uncomfortable. I don't like this anymore. Well, the same thing happens intellectually is you just go, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm just going to give it up. No, I know this feeling. It feels the same as when I was doing that run. I didn't, didn't give it up then. I'm not going to give it up now. So I, I, that's why I'm a, a huge promoter of just doing things that get you out of your comfort zone because I think physically aligns with intellectually and mentally as well. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a, a part of it. Yeah. No, I, I think you're getting at something that it's really speaking to like where humans get their sense of self and how there's a lot of elements here, but one thing in particular that is kind of, I guess, ironic is I would say people would, the argument, you know, someone would be like, you know, how, how can you say I'm not struggling enough when like, I feel like I'm struggling. And I think the irony there Mm -hmm. is we, this is actually why I, I have a lot of these wellness conversations on my show because something that I talk about is like the, your nervous system capacity and, you know, through actual practices like working out, breath work, meditation, and all these things, we expand our nervous system capacity to deal with hardship. But the problem is when you have a very like short adaptability, literally between like to get sciencey, like your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system your body thinks it's in danger when it's actually not. And so it's ironic because people will say like, I am struggling though. Like life is actually hard for me, whatever, which maybe it is like, there are cases where people are really going through real shit and like, you know, it's important to recognize that. But it seems that on the sort of like cultural level, what we deem to be a real threat is not actually a threat. And that we've really like softened what we are able to handle. And it's all because like, I think the instrument, the human body, like mind, body, soul aspect, where the sense of self comes in is very off tune. It's very like there's, it's in disarray, which is why I think people perceive things as being a threat or being dangerous or whatever, even though it's really not. And so What's interesting there is like that sense of self peace, which to me gets very spiritual, like whether it's like, you know, connected to a higher power or not, it's just like, how do you view your existence? And it's important because 
I know I've, I've seen you talk about meaning and purpose versus happiness and that that can be a huge piece where it's like if we're in a constant struggle to feel like we need to be validated and approved and people to to clap for us and say yes you're good and you're worthy and you need that from outside that also gets really messy right that's where like self-censorship comes in is like we're afraid of just being what we are as is yeah. You know, I talk a lot about identity because even like, what are you, you know, like identity is a tricky thing. It's so that's such like a thing now about, you know, how do you identify, but identity isn't just how you see yourself. I saw a big billboard. I live in LA. So it's a big billboard. It's like, you are who you say you are. It's like, that's not true. It's obviously not true. You are who you say you are and you are how the world sees you and how your community, like there's a lot of elements of that, but the way that the narratives that you tell yourself really matter. It's so cool doing a podcast. And I'm sure you get the same thing where it's like, you talk to all these interesting people and you get like, like like find these patterns and how you identify really, really matters. Cause if you identify as a vegan compared to just being vegan, it's going to manifest in very different ways when you're presented with contradictory information, because one of them, you will actually feel attacked and your brain won't really know the difference between being, you know, a bear running after you and someone saying something about how veganism is bad or something like that. And you just, you know, you're kind of a a slave to the way your brain operates. You know, you, you, you were talking about how people push back on like, well, I am struggling. And I think that's why uh, I don't find myself aligned with one kind of like political side in this. Cause you could say like the right is more like anti-woke and then the left is like more woke or something like that. I think a mistake of people on the conservative side do is they say like microaggressions are nonsense, like blah, blah, blah. No, like I, I don't buy into that. I think that if it feels real to you, it's real to you. Perception is reality. And, and the saying of and saying something like, well, you have nothing to worry about. That's not going to get us through this. I think you have to identify that this is very real to you. It does feel attacking. And if I go up and I just like pat you on the back, you say like, ow, that hurts. Like that was real to you. Let's really figure and not just go, oh, stop it. No, no, no. Like what's going on? Why does that hurt you? Let's try and really figure this out because the, the conservative approach of just like suck it up. Well, that's not working. That's not going to work. And if you know social science, that doesn't help. You don't go to a therapist. A therapist is just like, oh, you don't have problems. Like they figure your problems and they work with you through it to better understand it. And I think that's where there's nuance to be had between like the left and the right. And that's why I kind of find myself aligned with like the politically homeless crew is because I think that there's elements of, of, I can still be very critical of wokeness, but as I said, like I can defend critical race theory probably better than a lot of woke people can. And I can defend know why microaggressions are very real, even though I think that it's, it's a real problem. So I think that that, that, that nuance is interesting to me. And, and I wish I, I guess that's what I'm trying to promote is more of that. Totally. Yeah. You bring up a really interesting point about really the way recognizing that perception is your reality, right? There's no other way to slice it. And there's a, there's an interesting like duality that exists in that because this is what you're getting at is like we can hold multiple truths at the same time. And that's what nuance is. That's what like, I mean, that's what life is. And we say, you know, okay, I am triggered right now. I feel this thing. Like it's an actual emotion in my body. 
or I'm interpreting this thing that happened to me as a microaggression or as like, you know, the patriarchy or whatever. Like that's a true feeling. And then to say, actually, why don't I like confront this as being maybe just information and then say like, what does this mean? And what can I dig deeper on instead of always fighting against it? Because I think that's as well why, you know, a common thread tends to be sort of mindset work and like just allowing yourself to accept the facts, like accept reality, not to say you're going to like do nothing about it, but to confront it as like, this is what is, this is what happened to me and then decide how we think about it. And I think a difference between at least what I see as like what we'd qualify as, as woke, which is the best term. I, I It's like an annoying term yeah. these days because it feels so like we're against this group of people. And I don't like saying that, but it gets the idea across is it feels very like, like, fuck everything. Everything's a lie. Everything sucks. I hate everything. Burn it to the ground. <laughs> like it's an extreme of how to deal with things we don't like. And then on the other extreme is like, you know, conservative literally in the word is like things are good let's just keep it how it is suck it up like life is pretty good let's be fine with it but again there are extreme sides of the coin that kind of wind up doing nothing in the end where we find ourselves in the middle and nuance is like okay what if things actually could improve what if things aren't good in this arena but instead of saying like let's override it completely, let's rewrite the definition, let's throw everything we've learned out the window, like how do we meet ourselves in the middle? And that's actually where I see the there's like a diagram someone made where it's like both extremes just end up meeting each other again at the top, where, for example, with gender ideology, if you just say the statement, everything you've been told is a lie and you know we can actually choose our own reality is the same thing that someone on the extreme conspiracy side would be like nothing is real they're lying to you like you can choose what you want to believe and it's the same idea but they're it's a little dangerous at that end because you're sort of disregarding holding multiple things at the same time yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean i guess i'm just more critical of the extreme on the left, because I think that the extremes on the right have enough criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just so obvious that the, the wild, the craziest conspiracy theories and the overtly racist people just, they don't have any kind of real foothold of like power. Not really. You could say like Trump, but like Trump, like, I mean, if you really can see him objectively, I think I pre- actually see Trump pretty objectively. I never voted for him or anything, but like, I was so curious about him because he's such a powerful lightning rod figure in our society that i mean like at best it was like dog whistling to try and get friendly with racist people as a voter base you know but like i don't i think trump is a narcissist i think that he could have a a disabled black muslim trans person who's like wearing a maga hat and says i love trump and he would would love him like like, i don't think it's racist i think he's he's got issues but i don't think racism is one of them but uh but that gets so much criticism, but the the craziness on the left is is being mainline. I mean, it's 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 become very very mainstream. I mean, in universities, in corporations, and stuff, because it has this this guise, this this like this like costume of being the benevolent thing, the kind thing, caring for the most marginalized and. Most people just, you know, they're busy. They don't have time to sit down and do a podcast like you and I are doing, you know? And like, yeah. and they're just like, 
oh, they're, they're supporting marginalized communities. Yeah, they're good. They're the good guys. You know, so they, they are able to go through. And that's why I'm more critical of the left. It's not because I don't think that crazies on the right are crazy and dangerous. It's because I think you're less dangerous when everyone's watching everything you're doing and saying it's terrible. That's, that's, that's less of a worry for me than people being like, oh, they're doing good things. They're fighting racism. They're fighting, you know, uh, uh, trans uh, murders. It's like, oh, right. okay, well, then, yeah, I'll get behind that. And it's not what it is. Yeah, I think that's exactly why, A, it's so fascinating, but B, so concerning because it's like, you know, some of the worst historical outcomes were always like for the greater good, like we're helping everyone. Oh, like, or, yeah. yeah, it's of course, they're always going to say this is for, you know, this is because we care. We want to protect you. That was the language we've seen all through COVID was like, yeah. you know, put, you know, we're all in this together, whatever. And it becomes insidious, though, because you're pulling at people's need to be liked, which is a normal human function. Like mm-hmm. it's psychotic to be like i actually don't care like well, yeah, because we're, we're tribal. tribal i mean we evolved yes. to be tribal, tribal. right right so yeah like, and so in our biology exactly yeah. yeah so i'm wondering how that how, how you've seen that play out for sure in, in the classrooms i'm especially curious about because as that being you know where a lot of young people are learning how to think and a lot of cases today what to think but particularly how to you know work through their ideas, how to critically think through these or not, how that element of sort of preying on young people's um, just desire to be good, desire to be to fit in, how that plays out at that level. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's happening. And I think that a lot of the, the teachers who are doing this and you could probably watch like I don't have TikTok, but like libs of TikTok and stuff like that, like these teachers who are pushing all of their gender ideology stuff and critical theory stuff. I mean, I think that they they buy into it and they, they believe it, that this is the right thing to do. And and, you know, you're helping by, you know, giving these people exactly what they want, what they say. And that's not no, no. Like we have to give kids boundaries and borders and you can't just you can't just let people behave any way they want because they are fall, fall along these immutable characteristics. I mean. I think it was Eric Weinstein said something like, if I can't criticize you, you're not my equal. No. And like, like that's, that's, that's not, that's not nice. What kind of, that's, that's a terrible parent. That's like a, an abusive parent who lets their kid do whatever they want. You know? And if you say like, well, but what if you have, you know, three white kids and you adopt a black kid and you let the black kid do whatever he wants. Like that's horrible. No, you treat the black kid just like your white kids. That's what you do. You, you, you treat them equally. That's what equality is all about. That this country was supposed to be all about whether whatever religion you are and whatever, um, you know, and then eventually, you know, as Frederick Douglass said, like he started to own it, like, you know, it goes for me too, you know, for all the, the, you know, black, whether it's black people or whatever it is, like, um, you know, we didn't have that when it was established, agreed, but America was an idea, not it wasn't in practice yet. We had to you know, work our way up to, to this idea of getting equality. Um, but yeah, it, it is happening in classrooms because it's very like Rousseauian, you know, like kids know, kids know what, what, what's right. Kids know um, the right way to be, who they are. You know, that's like with some of the extreme, I mean, small fringe, but again, it's kind of becoming more mainstream of like, you know, trans five-year-olds and stuff like that. Like, that, that that's absurd. And we, we've known that was absurd up until yesterday. 
And it's not good to not give these kids boundaries and let them, you know, figure it out. Like I, I've become friends with a lot of different transgender people and they all figured it out. They didn't need to figure it out at six. It was not something that was most of them were like, this isn't ideal. I mean, I mean, all of them that I'm friends with, they're very reasonable people. Like this isn't ideal for me, but it just, I couldn't escape it. This is just who I am. So I have to live with it. And this, so I chose to get these surgeries and stuff so I can present myself in the world this way. And that's, that's not something that you should rush. That's something that needs to take some time and you will figure it out. And as long as you're kind to these kids and you're helping them to think about who they are and stuff like that, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Not pushing this because there's a very clear social contagion element that's going on right now. Abigail Stryer's work and stuff like that. She uncovered a lot of like these young girls are transitioning you know, in like groups and stuff like that. Because one of the things that this is kind of off on a tangent, but like one of the things I've seen as an educator is kids who are neglected. I taught in like really bad areas of LA and I taught in like really wealthy areas of LA and both kids get neglected in different ways. But what I found is kids who are neglected at home, they will act up so that their parents have to come to, to, to the school and yell at them and get berated by, by the principal over how the kids are in a hole or whatever it is. But I think it was Ellie Wiesel said, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And when these kids feel like their parents are indifferent to them, they want to be given attention. They want to be celebrated, even if it's like in a negative way, they want to be focused on. So a lot of children say, what do I have to do to get, you know, attention and, and get, you know, people looking at me and praising me because kids want praise. And you said like, they want to be liked is all you have to do is say that you're whatever an LGBTQ member, or you're aligned with this or whatever it is. And that's it. That's all you have to do. And then you do that, you get celebrated and the kids go, Oh, that, that's like the reinforcement, the positive reinforcement elements that the way the brain plays up and like, Oh, well, I'll keep going down that road because I'm getting the positive reinforcement that I so desperately need as a child. And it's, it's, it's not that complex. I'm not like a, I'm not an expert on psychology and I understand this pretty well. So like, it's not that complex. Um, and yet we are doing it over and over and over again. Real problem. Is there like a middle ground of like talking about gender identity or is there really no, no place for it? I think, it, I think it's, it just has to be developmentally appropriate. You know, once you get to high school, I think it's fine to have, you know, in health class or whatever, talk about different kinds of, of attraction, relationships, stuff like that. Because, yeah, some kids are going to be gay. Some kids are going to be trans. They're be very small, but some kids are going to be trans. Some kids are going to be, you know, mixed up and, and, you know, whatever it is. But definitely not when they're little. Like, you first have to understand the way, like up from down, I have a seven and a five-year-old and then a, a kid who's turning a, a year, one year next week. And like, even my seven-year-old, like they're, they're, they don't know anything. I was just trying to go, I was just playing go fish with them right before I jumped on here. And like, he was having trouble, like understanding the rules of go fish. My five-year-old was like, and my seven-year-old was like having trouble, like getting his cards together. Like you can't say like, they need some clear boundaries and borders about what the world is and then when they go wait a second i don't fit into this boundary or border like yeah welcome to the club none of us do so it's like okay well in what ways don't you well like i'm supposed to be attracted to girls and i yeah, i'm not i don't know why i'm, I'm aligned more with the with the stuff that the that the girls are doing but i don't feel like any kind of attraction to them or my friends do that is stuff that will come up but you have to let them kind of 
I don't know if the struggle is the right word, but you kind of have to let them wrestle with that a little bit. And that's, that's how we grow up. I'm sure you were a weird teenager. I was really weird. Like we were all weird teenagers and we all didn't fit in. And that's okay. That's great. That's what makes us so diverse and amazing. That's what's so cool. And push that. Like, you know what? Up is maybe sometimes down just is so freaking confusing. And what we need to do is just get them some basics of like math and reading and stuff like that. And then later on, 17, 18, 19 years old, whatever, then they can start to go, wait, why don't I feel like I fit in here? And then we talk to them about it. So I think as long as it's developmentally appropriate, I think it's okay. But I think it should not be state sanctioned. I'm kind of on board with the people who are saying like, this is something that needs to happen at home, which some homes are not very good and accepting of that. But I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of gay friends who were not accepted by their dads and stuff, but that's okay. Like some, you could have great parents and end up being great, or you could have terrible parents and go, I don't want to be like them and end up being great. So yeah, you don't push this like, because one size is not fit all. We have very different temperaments. I, I think that it's okay in certain circumstances, but it has to be aligned with the parents and with the way the parents want to kind of do it, especially when they're a minor. Once they're 18, if your parents don't accept who you are, then you can go, you can get out. You can even do it earlier than that, but it's going to be some turmoil. That's, that's just yeah. that's life. It goes back that's to the comfort life, thing. Yeah. It's not going to be comfortable, but it's, it's, it's the, I think it's the only way to, to kind of do it and come out as unscathed as, as you can. What we're doing now, I think is the opposite. Right. Well, I think it, it's kind of like taking the normal human experience of being, you know, a young person. There's different phases which are important to recognize. Like, I'm pretty sure I think it's up until seven years old. You're in, I think it's what's called theta brainwaves, which is like, you're literally just absorbing everything. Like, it's not mm-hmm. quite yet. You don't quite yet have the ability to like process and pick and oh, choose yeah, sort of what yeah. you believe, which makes sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. when babies are first born, they literally don't view anything as separate. Like they actually, you know, because this is our true nature, they do view everything as one thing. And so, of course, as you know, in those early years, you're going to go through mental, physical struggles. And it seems like gender ideology is like the dangling carrot of like, here's your quick solution, which is not life. That's not how you develop yourself as it's not how you develop a strong sense of self by giving into short-term gratification of like, if you just, you know, give yourself this label and if you just tell your friends this thing, suddenly you're going to be happy because that's not the real process of like going through what you need to go through. And so that's what's so interesting is there's a clear misunderstanding of a, what is developmentally appropriate and what kids are actually what stage they're actually at what their brain can handle like where their consciousness is at like what they're going to absorb versus not absorb like that's why we have clear rules about like or laws even of like at what age can someone actually provide consent because like Mm -hmm. you know we we can encourage kids to like develop their intuition and be creative and all those things but there's nuance where we need to also understand like there's a reason why you need a parent to survive because you don't fully understand the world and that's the point. That's how you end up understanding it. So it's very interesting to notice how when you then bring in something like specifically gender ideology and like, you know, just the solution that that presents, 
is you're bypassing the real human experience of what it is to come into to, to come of age essentially yeah and i think that then just like the kind of these the common theme again is just like that struggle you know it's like that struggle and kids you know it, it's an easy out from the struggle just like you can stop your running or you can get off in your echo chamber to just it's easy to just go to your side that just is going to celebrate you not have you think too hard about it that's like it, we just have to build stronger stronger children and and I don't think that the school system is generally doing that. I think that what it does is it, it builds a lot of compliance. It, 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 I always say it exchanges curiosity for compliance, imagination for compliance. And then what happens is like during COVID, uh, I told the story before, but like, it was like, I was at a, like a bed, uh, bath and body works. I was buying a scented candle for my wife. So I, you know, pick up the scented candle and I'm like, and I pulled down my mask and she goes, no, you can't pull down your mask. I was like, it's a scented candle. I can't smell. Like, no, I just buy, like, I don't know what this, I don't know what ocean wave smells like or whatever it is, you know, paradise. Like, I don't know what that means. So um, she's like, well, sorry, you have to, I was like, can I talk to your manager? Manager came out and I, and I was like, can I, why can't I pull down my mask? Well, she's like, it's just the rules from my whatever regional manager. So I went to the regional manager, talked to the regional manager. They're like, oh, it's just the rules from the department. So then I was like, What's the department? The department's like, oh, it's just from Gavin Newsom. So what happens is, this is a real problem in the education system is, and this goes back to, I think, your first question about the high school is like, kids are just trying to grab the, 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 the carrot. You know, they're not thinking, they're just going through the motions. You know, they're, they're, they're running through an obstacle course, no idea where it goes, no idea even why they're going, going through it, but they're told, if you run this obstacle course in this certain time, then you are given all the things you want in the world when you get, then you get into college and then you get the job and then you get all the material things. You get the corner of office and you get an Audi or whatever it is. And, and so they're just kind of running through it. They're not actually thinking, but then what happens is you become so, and then they're not getting literacy. They're not learning. They're not, they can sound out words. They don't actually know how to like a lot of high schools around the country couldn't read something, give you like an accurate summary. So now you're relying on someone else to tell you what's going on. Okay, and that's what video, everything does video now. So they're just telling you the news. They're not, you're not actually reading studies. They're telling you the studies. You're listening to other people tell you. So it's people who are just doing what they're told. And that makes you so susceptible to demagoguery. That makes you so just, just able to be manipulated by anyone who's in power. Because once they get into power, they just say, do this. And you go, well, my whole life I've been told to do it because that's how I get success. So I'll just do it. And we saw that during COVID. Is like what what is what does Gavin Newsom know about about like the science behind virology and stuff? Nothing. He doesn't know anything. But we're just we'll listen, we'll listen to him, you know, and, and even like the the doctors like you know, Fauci or someone like that. I mean, I don't care. I mean, he knows a lot about virology, but there's a lot of doctors that do, but it was just just him. And then on the other side, you can say like the right people, they just I grabbed onto whatever McCulloch or 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 someone like that, like one of the, the anti-doctors, and he's the only one. No, like you take a whole bunch of different perspectives and all of that kind of stuff and you wrestle with it again, but that's not what's happening. So I think that that's going back to your first question. I think that's what's happening in school. And then that's happening now just in the real world is we're just kind of doing what we're told and not processing through it, not going through it, not asking questions and just like, we're just kind of on autopilot. I think way too many people are just on autopilot. Right. Yeah. So how do you, in your classroom, do you bring, are you bringing in like 
cultural issues and breaking them down yeah, or everything. what's like this, the subject matter that you specialize in? Yeah, everything. So, um, I teach, I've taught all areas of social science. So I've written sociology courses, history courses. I've taught us history. This is my first year, 17th year. First year I didn't teach us history. Uh, I've taught us government, um, all 17 years I'm teaching it this year. So this year it's, um, us government and civics. So, um, how to be a good citizen rights and responsibilities. We focused on rights for a very long time and justifiably so because people didn't have rights and stuff, but we lost, there's, a, there's a, um, an opportunity cost there. We lost our responsibilities. What is your responsibility to the greater community? You know, I mean, what, what do people say when they get jury duty? It's like, ah, damn it. You know, what do people say when, it, when they, it's like they see litter? It's like, ah, it's not my responsibility. So it's a lot about being a good citizen and things, but I bring up all of these cultural issues. I mean, all of them. So, and, and if I have a student who disagrees with me, then we dive into it. And I say, like, this isn't me, some sage on a stage telling you what is. This is me kind of guiding you through a thinking process. And we're going to be in this together trying to figure it out. But if a kid says something about why I'm wrong, then I'll just ask a lot of questions. And what will happen? Because, again, they're, you know, eight, 17, 18 years old, the oldest. And I've, I've been in this, you know, diving into this stuff pretty deep for a while now that I'll just ask them a lot of questions and it will reveal that they don't really know a whole lot. And that's I'm like, okay, well now, now you have your, your aim. Now you have your bullseye, learn more about this you know, and then come back. And you might be right. I might be wrong, but you don't have enough information to make that a conclusive statement yet. So let's go out and learn this on our own. So I, yeah, I bring all of it into my classroom. I, nothing is off limits in my classroom to talk about. And I'm very lucky that I can do that. It's extremely rare. I'm yeah. in a crazy unique situation. That well, I've how, how, how are you able to do that? Because I left every public school that I was at. Um, I tried to be myself in the classroom and the public schools were just like, yeah, yeah like they one, didn't want to lose me, but they were like, you can't be this way. Like you have to do this, you know? And I was like, well, I, I'm not going to, I got to go. So I found a um, modern Orthodox Jewish religious school, which is strange because I'm not Jewish. Um, but uh, there's a woman named um, uh, Megan Phelps Roper. She was, she was on Sam Harris's podcast. Stuff. She was a member. She was born into the Westboro Baptist church, that like crazy Christian cult that like God hates bags group. And, um, and she was on Twitter and a modern Orthodox rabbi just started asking her simple questions. And that's what eventually broke her out. There's something in, um, the Jewish tradition of questions, it's questions. It's just questioning things. It's, 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 it's these debates that you have over the Shabbat table and stuff every week and you can't Google it. So you just have to kind of work it out and get uncomfortable with ideas and things like that. Um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that like Ben Shapiro is so good at what he does and he's a member of that community. Um, he was out here in LA. He was like a member of the community that I taught in. Um, and, uh, and because of that, they appreciate what I'm doing. They understand what I'm doing. Um, it's aligned with a lot of principles in like the Talmud and the, the Torah and stuff like that. So when they get letters, which they do from like people from social media and stuff, you know, you employ a racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, homophobe, whatever. They're talking about they, you. Yeah. Yeah. They get letters sent to my school to try and get me fired. How do, they, do people, is this like from like, who are these letters coming from? How do they found out, find out? Oh, I mean, they probably just Google me or something like that. So okay. I'll, I'll go on, I'll be critical of Ibram Kendi or Nicole Hannah Jones, or I did this, this, um, this Instagram live with three critical race theory teachers that kind of went viral. And, um, 
and they kind of sick their minions on me. They said like, get this guy fired, get him out of the classroom. So they, people tried. And while you were on the live, um, after, as soon as it got off, I got on and then it went kind of viral, got picked up and stuff like that. You know, tens of thousands of people watched it and it made critical race theorists look really bad because I just asked questions and they ended up saying things like it's wild to watch, but like they said, end up saying things like the Socratic method is toxic. Don't ask questions. Just don't, just like do what we say. And the whole thing was like, how are we going to implement critical race theory in a classroom? And it got revealed that like, you can't ask questions. You just need to comply. So it looked really bad and they got very defensive. So they, they kind of got people to go after me and it would, I would have gotten fired 100%. I mean, Paul Rossi got fired, you know, I mean, for, for just wanting to bring in a black conservative in Glenn Lowry. I mean, it was crazy what, what'll get you fired, but I am just very, very lucky that I have a supportive administration that just says, keep doing it. It's, it's rare. It's very, very rare. Um, but because of that, I can do this stuff. The kids love it. Even it's weird too, because I have kids who are like pretty, pretty right wing, you know, in my class, I feature like financiers on wall street and stuff. <laughs> I also have like, you know, girls who are, you know, marching with black lives matter and blue hair and stuff like that. And they both, by the end of the, of the year, they both are very, very on board with what I'm doing because I, it's, it's, it's awesome. And, and so the parents like what I'm doing, the kids like what I'm doing. But any kid that says that they don't like what I'm doing, like Mr. Roosh is this or that, like I invite them to the conversation. Those are kids who either didn't never took my class or they, um, it's, I think it's almost all kids who never took my class, but it's, or it's kids who just like refuse to actually interact with me. You know, they're like, Mr. Roosh is like, is like alt-right. He's just pushing, you know, Republican stuff. I'm like, I actually never voted Republican. So what, what, what else you got? Yeah, just slap the you know, label on there. Yeah, yeah. Like so, so they understand what I'm doing. If they disagree, they'll disagree with me, which is I want that. But they they understand what I'm doing, and they recognize that I'm just trying to get them to think. And that's I think I, I see my job as. So I'm very very lucky that I can bring all that stuff in my classroom. Yeah, and it should be in more classrooms. Totally. I mean, that's amazing. Like it also sounds like your commitment to basically just being like your authentic self and the way that you see like an important way to teach and like your integrity really is what made it possible that you could find a school that would value you. Yeah. And I had to look for it, but, but I was was very lucky to find it. Yeah. You know, um, we were talking about identity kind of aligned with what you just said is I try very hard to just be aligned. So what I say, think and do is the same. It's, it's, it's easier for me. It's not just because I think that I'm like, I have more integrity. I, I think that would, I think I'm, I might have, you could say like more integrity than some people, but it's, it's really just a self-preservation thing. It's just easier. Yeah. I, I, I was a dishonest person for a long time when I was younger and stuff like that. And it's just, it was a lot to take inventory. Like, Oh wait, hold on. I was telling them this, and I'm this person around this person. And like, uh, it's just, I get confused. So it's just way easier. Like who I am on this podcast is who I am everywhere like i just i just want to it's just easier to just be aligned in all of the stuff uh and i and so so it probably comes off as as having you know integrity and saying what i mean and stuff like that because it's just it's just an easier way to go about it and i think that does resonate with kids and, yeah. and again, again i'm also a school teacher like i got into this profession like i do care about kids i do care about like I, i'm a soft-hearted person at, at the core so like it's 
I think that 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 comes across as well to my students is like, I'm not going to be like harsh. I'm not going to be pushing the ideology. I'll say what I think is right. Like I'm against the war on drugs and I'll say why. And if a kid says like, well, that's wrong for these reasons, then I'll engage with them because I, I'm pretty solid. I think the war on drugs is pretty terrible. I would love to hear what I'm missing from that. I really would. I'm like, I would want a more nuanced stance on something that I'm very firmly standing on. Uh, and I think that is a little um, intimidating to people who are trying to like get me like I'm going to own you will like people even online. I'm like, please, yeah, I want to get owned. I don't want to walk around with bad ideas. I want to be proven wrong all the time. And then they're thinking that that's like that, like I'm going to resist that because a lot of people do, but not me. Like, yeah. you're, you're, well, it's I'm like you don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. you're not over identifying with your ideas right like they're just i mean with identity it's something i also find very fascinating it's actually especially from sort of the philosophical standpoint i i read a lot about uh eastern philosophy and buddhism um and i love it because it provides a very interesting framework that's very different from the west of how to essentially view yourself as like you know an individual but you, I really get a sense that over attachment to identity, really of any kind, which mm-hmm. there's a lot there. I really want to explore this idea because it makes me nervous to talk about, but it's like, even you can say, and this is something I, I need to think about more, but like over identifying with anything, even including your immutable characteristics, because all these, in some ways, their identities are harmless, right? Mm-hmm. It's really all about your relationship to it. But in other ways, it really just creates these beliefs and stories around who you are, what's acceptable, what you can think about, what you can't think about, you know, what, what's okay to talk about, who you can be friends with. Like, I find that putting yourself into any label or box or group over attaching, right? Like, to a healthy level, yeah, it's yeah. okay. We need community. I think that's very important. But being able to step away and say, you know, I can exist just by the fact that I am whole as I am, you know, sort of bringing in that like spiritual aspect of just like, you know, I'm free by virtue of existing. I'm one with the universe, like in that version, but also more grounded of just saying like, I can be an individual and I can ebb and flow and evolve. And that, that I think provides a really important, a very powerful breeding ground for being able to not be over attached to ideas and debate. Right. And to be like, prove me wrong. Like, tell me how this is not a sound idea because if you prove me wrong, nothing, nothing changes. I'm good. Like I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I'm approved. Like I have love for myself. I'm worthy. And to me, the over identification, that relationship, that's so the marriage to identity to me is a red flag in people, because I think that's what stops you from being able to evolve and change in the ways that you probably need to. Yeah, I think that's a very enlightened, if you can get to that point, that's incredible. I think a lot of us would probably struggle. It's, maybe it's an ongoing process you reach when you're 80 years old or whatever, something like that, like a monk. But um, I love the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. It's really excellent. And we, it helped me like how to raise my kids and stuff. It's, it's like this concept of a growth mindset of the power of yet. And so like if my kid makes a bad decision, we don't say you're bad. Uh, we say you made a bad decision. Um, my kid is really good at like puzzles. We don't say you're smart. 
then he'll identify as being smart. And then what, what, they, what she found in her studies at Stanford was a kid who identifies as smart, you give them a puzzle and they struggle through it, but they get it. And you say, okay, do you want to go up one more notch? They say, no, because if I fail the puzzle and I'm the smart kid, then what is it? I had a kid at my school who was the fastest runner in school. And then a new kid came who was a little bit faster. I go, are you going to race him? He goes, no. I'm like, why? He's like, well, what if I lose? I'm not the fast kid anymore. So from that, you know, the way that's how, how I'm raising my, my boys, it's like, you're a hard worker because you can always work harder. You know, you can all like that, that is like, if you align your, so I told my, the student of mine, I said, don't align with being the fast kid, be the, the kid who exerts the most effort. Cause that's, that's, that's more, that's more fluid, I think. And you know, the, uh, um, I'm not aligned with having the right answers. That's not my identity. My identity though, is to find the right answers. So when I'm proven wrong, it's along the same pathway. I'm not always going to be on that pathway of finding the best answers, not having the right answers. So that's why I don't like debate because debate is I have the right answers. I'm going to try and convince you or whoever at the monkey debates, whoever is going to be judging it, that I'm right. And in that you are going to intentionally ignore valid points that will help you get towards the right answer. I like conversations. I like trying to figure things out way more than proving that I'm right. And I think that that is something that we can bring in. But I think is on, the, on, on like the, the pathway toward getting to the point where you don't, you know, have, like you're saying, where, you know, you just, you're, you're more fluid and, and stop focusing so much on yourself and how you present in the world, but just you're a part of this big, you know, reality and you're a part of, the, of, of everything. We're all just made up of the same molecules type of stuff. But, uh, but I think that that's, that's another element that I think is really cool, you know, for your listeners to think about like, you know, wh- what, what is it? What, what could you, how could you identify that will always be, be like a malleable and adjusting and moving as opposed to you are this thing, because there's always going to be someone bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, whatever it is. And then what happens to you? What happens to you then? And then you, you might pull back from becoming the best version of yourself, which is what we should be aiming to be because you don't want to lose that sense of self. And losing yourself is a big part of the, of, yeah, like Buddhist concept. Yeah. I love those examples you gave because it's such a slight shift, but it's really profound because mm-hmm. it ends up putting more importance on sort of like action and like what you strive for. And sometimes it's like certain frameworks of identity are a destination and you're you're there. So no, no nothing more to do, just like maintain where you're at versus yeah. that slight shift that says, you know, I can constantly evolve by having this identity, this sense of self and that brings me closer to who I really am, right? Like the idea that you're not necessarily like becoming something else or morphing and you have to like fight to like grow yourself to some destination, but that actually you are removing layers and becoming more of like the exhale of like, this is my essential nature as a human being. And when I'm there, anything is possible. Like I can talk about anything. It feels better. Yes. It feels like it feels feels better better that someone someone says like, like, well, you're wrong about this. You said this and it was wrong. And for me to go like, Oh my gosh, thank you. Oh my gosh. I don't want to be wrong. Like, like 
for even them, they're like, I'm going to own you with, huh? And then I'm like, you did. Wow. Thank you so much. And then I responded to that. Like, I'm not fearful going in the world with my ideas or anything. It's just, it's just, it, it feels like a weight off my shoulders when I started to, to, to think this way. And I want to do that with, with my students too. And young people need that too, that, that you got to be really careful. Cause if you're, you're just the kid who's, who's great at everything and you're the one who never screws up, then why will you ever take risks? And then you don't take risks. And then you live a life that doesn't take any risks and without risks, how, how, what kind of reward can you really get? Right. That, that's, that's a big problem too. Yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. we're seeing play out on so many levels mm-hmm. of, you know, when some people are baffled at like, how is it possible that like this person can't, you know, quote unquote, see the truth or how, how can they not understand what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And it's just an issue of like the human dilemma of attaching yourself to you know, I need to be good. I need to be the best. I need to be right. Like I need to fit in with my tribe. You know, if I disagree with this COVID protocol, like suddenly I'm a bad person. And so, you know, when someone, when that's someone's operating mode, their default, of course, they don't want to engage with you because you're going to make them uncomfortable and have to question, you know, who they are, what they think, and sort of like the, the reality that they've started to perceive and it's very uncomfortable to break that down, which speaks to why you're saying, like, make yourself uncomfortable on purpose, like yeah. do hard things, both mental, physical, spiritual, like the whole realm, you know, so that you don't need to rely on like extrinsic motivators to feel OK all the time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's like fleeting, you know? Yeah. What do you see young people or at least in the, the pool that you've engaged with? sort of like where their aspirations are at and how you as a as a teacher as a mentor how you sort of try to shape or drive people in a certain direction if if any yeah uh and that's another huge problem is because they're so busy with compliance they're not thinking about who am i what do i want to do how do i want to spend my days you know so most my seniors, and again, I'm at this private school now, so it's maybe maybe it's different because they're under like a tremendous amount of pressure and stuff like that um, for achievement. But it's pretty. I've talked I talked to a lot of teachers and and high school kids from around you know different environments too, and it seems pretty universal that a lot of them don't know what to do. They don't know what what to do, and they get told things like um, be practical, or they get told things like turn your passion into a career. No. Or turn what you love into your career. That's a terrible. I love sitting. I was just got back from vacation. I was sitting on a deck drinking like a, a seven and seven, some whiskey on the deck and going to the beach. I'm passionate about that. That's not a job. So I think I, what I tell them, I did something I developed a couple of years ago. I think it's pretty good. It's find the thing you love working hard at uh, and not find the thing that you love and turn it into a job. Cause you could love things that are destructive. You could learn, love things that aren't helping, you know, really anything like, um, very self-centered stuff, but find the thing that you love working hard at. And I think you will excel really anything. I, I'm friends with um, a woman, Shannon Weinstein, who's a, um, an accountant and she loves numbers. She's like, I, I love just like finding my clients. Like a hat.
Yeah, <laughs> just talking about it. Yeah, that's yeah. I I that love. Kind of rant, no, yeah. that was that was amazing. It so many so many light bulbs were yeah. going off in my head because it's a big thing for a lot of people is how to figure out what do I spend my time doing? Like what do, what interests me? Right, and it's again that thread of like, well, there's a lot of what we're told to do, a lot of what has been sold to us as like this is what equals happiness. This is how you achieve whatever. This is how you like live out the the perfect life and they're mostly driven by those external motivators right the most obvious one being money but that plays out in different ways too like status and 
you know, material things, the family life, whatever. I would argue striving for a family is a good thing. Um, But, you know, it can play out in ways where you end up doing things that you aren't actually fulfilled. And making that difference between striving for happiness and going for essentially meaning and purpose is like understanding what it actually takes to get to happiness. And it's really important to recognize the way you explained it, like happiness can, you can be kind of hijacked in your sense of what you think is happiness. It's like, oh, well, like you said, I like sitting on the beach and drinking whatever. It's like, yeah, who doesn't, right? But what gets you up every day is something that has more of like a long-term purpose and that you can keep doing. And the frame of what you love was what you love working hard at is that key because you know people like the do what you love i think it's getting at the same idea but it can be sort of misconstrued to do something that's like oh well i like money Party and planet. buying the- <laughs> yeah Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's why trying out a lot of things is really important. And actually, why, like you're saying, entrepreneurship is a really great way to do that because the life of an entrepreneur is kind of always like trial and error and like, you know, set trying out different things and seeing how they go. And I often reflect back on my own journey and how I, I feel like lucky in a sense that I, compared to my peers, I feel like I found what I wanted to do very young. And part of that was because my parents really uh, encouraged me and my siblings to try a lot of things and to be creative and to just go for it. And there was always a sense of like, you can do anything, boys or girls. I'm family of four, two, two girls, two boys. Oh, and cool. yeah, it's I love having a lot of siblings. Um, and it was it was cool because they really created a, an environment where. It was about saying, like, believe in yourself, right? That was all really beautiful. Like, my my dad was really, and my mom, really big into, like, encouraging just our potential and saying, like, put your mind to it, work hard, anything's possible. And then also letting us try a lot of things, right? Like, you know, at a young age, soccer, ballet, dance, swim, all these things, but developing a sense where, oh, do you like doing this thing? Like, commit to it. Like, try it out for longer. And with me, mm-hmm. I really took to... um being sort of like an entertainer, but I also loved the camera. Like I would, you know, my dad would let me borrow his camera and take pictures and I would interview the family and like do these things. And then in high school, I had a teacher who was like, you have a talent here of, of filmmaking. And so I was like, okay, like that's cool. And I liked the work of it, right? Like sitting down, being in the zone, getting to that flow. And I think basically long story short, the way I found what I like to do, which now it's evolved a lot, like you're saying, like you know, I started out, I wanted to be a director. I think I'd still like to do that one day, but it's evolved and changed into where I'm using different things. I ended up being a, a double, a dual degree business and film. And I use it all. Like it's all part of the process, but being really encouraging, trying things and it be okay, it being okay if you fail, or if you don't like it strengthens that like intrinsic motivator where you're like, this is what it feels like when I do like it, when I enjoy the hard work, right? Instead of like, 
oh, you know, just being lost in the, oh, I don't even know where to start. And what if I don't like it? It's like, that's good. You should, you should strive for not liking it. Cause then you'll know what to try next. And like you build the relationship with your intuition, your, your like feelings really of, of what is true. What's not true for you. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, that's, that's really good for young people. You know, <laughs> I think I saw you recently speak about how you can like know all of the mechanics of how to have, let's say, a good conversation or a good, you know, disagreement. Yeah. But that sometimes it just doesn't work. And this is something I'm always looking into because a big theme that I talk about on social media is like just the productive disagreement. How do you like embrace viewpoint diversity? Like, how do you actually? then go into a conversation. What should you say? Like I, I used to sometimes share, okay, like the abortion debate is up, let, is like, you know, at the forefront of our minds. Here's like how to break it down, how to like talk to people yeah. about it. But it's hard because sometimes it's not fertile ground for a conversation. And I'm curious what you've seen as common threads in what makes it very difficult. Like what truly becomes a potentially impossible conversation? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Very short. Yeah. Easy. Another one you okay. might like, I don't maybe read it is um it's actually called the it's why are we yelling the art of productive disagreement by yes. Buster yeah. Benson. Really yeah. good.
Yeah, that makes sense to me. I that's I think what I find as well. And I mean, I, sometimes I get cynical and I wonder like are some people sort of like a lost cause? Like do you think curiosity can be taught or that it's sometimes just like an innate thing that you have and then you continue to cultivate but that there are some people who are like yeah i don't know like what's is it have you at least run into people have you seen students where like you know over semesters of of learning from you and seeing these these formats being put forward that nothing changes and like what do you do about that
people. Yeah. I mean, that's how a lot of people that I know personally, you know, the way that they've had some type of transformation in really just the way they think, the way they look at the world. That's what happened to me too. Um, is like or something like that. Uh, no, like just that I had like basically that have an ex- a personal experience that fundamentally changes the way they look at something specific yeah. and that that can open up their mind to other things. Yeah. Like for me, it was, um, it was actually that I was on the birth control pill and then I learned the, the truth about the pill, the horrors of it, what it does to your body, what it does to your hormones, like all this stuff. So I went down that rabbit hole and came to terms with the fact that like I agreed to doing something to my body that was really harmful and that still years later like I'm dealing with those repercussions and it was it changed the way that I looked at a lot of things but specifically like my view on health my view of pharma my view of doctors like mm-hmm. and so yeah it was a fundamental it was an experience that changed basically like in a holistic fashion in my mind and also in my body, like how I looked at a certain thing and that spiraled the rabbit hole of then, okay, what else, you know, that I've, now that I've survived an experience that I, you know, had to admit my own part of it, that I had to experience like the crumbling. Okay. I survived that. What else can I like explore? And that really started me on just a a curiosity journey. Like I, I think I've been very naturally curious just sort of like by nature, but Definitely the experience of going through something is what I've seen as a pattern, like for a lot of people, especially like yeah. with COVID was, you know, people who've had a health experience that changed the way they look at their own health. They could see like, you know, the dark parts of pharma or the dark parts of like, you know, health figures and how all that works. So, but I do think, you know, as for you as an educator and what you're doing online is like you're kind of providing like the seeds and like planting the seeds in different places of setting up for when someone does have an experience that, you know, fundamentally changes them or whatever it is. It doesn't even have to be like with politics. It can be something else, but just something that opens up what they thought they knew that then having, you know, those tools and that message, it will hit them, right? Like it goes over their head until they're ready. But the fact that like, the messages out there and you know the work you're doing it's like it does hit the the student who's who's primed for it which is important Right. Like, look for that. Yeah. Yeah. You get to figure it out. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. I, this, this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like we could go on for hours. Um, but I really, I really appreciate what you've, what you brought to the table. And I, it's, 
um, it's so important to just like understand the different layers of of culture and and how we view the world. And I I really appreciate what what you're doing. And I wish there was more more teachers like you. And um, so I'm I'm just appreciative of uh, your time, of course, and just getting to talk to you has been really fun. So I'm I'm grateful. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely l- let us know where um, where can people connect with you or any exciting projects you have working on that you want to share. And then after this as well, go ahead and send any links to me or wherever okay. so people can, can connect. Yeah, for sure. This is great. I really enjoyed it. And we, we should stay connected. Um, I I love the work you're doing. And I mean, as you explore ways to bring uh, just your your viewpoint and your approach to the world, um, I'm very much in the thralls of entrepreneurship and, you know, different projects and whatever. But um, yeah, we should stay connected because I just I love what you're doing. And who knows, there could always be a, an opportunity in the in the future to collab. So 